ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, $100 billion out of our pockets and into the profit margins of big companies. That's driving up inflation, according to competition guru Alan Fells in a new report. Also a breakthrough in the fight against an autoimmune disease that affects 25,000 Australians and claims the Aboriginal flag is being misappropriated for the Palestinian cause. So for this person to have used the plight of my people, the blood of my ancestors, to have hijacked our identity, I'm very upset by it. Thanks for your company. A new report into price gouging has found a serious lack of corporate competition means many of us are being ripped off at the checkout. Commissioned by the ACTU, the former competition watchdog chair, Alan Fells, found that at current levels of inflation, shoppers are needlessly handing over an additional $100 billion a year to airlines, supermarkets, banks and power providers. And he says the additional profit being derived is driving up inflation. The government's already taken steps to investigate price gouging, but what more, if anything, can be done? Reporter David Taylor takes a look. Like a lot of people, Ben in Melbourne's northeast is fed up with his car insurance. Never missed a beat, paid probably $6,000 in premiums every year, go to make a claim and you're treated like you are nothing. Ben made a claim, but the process, he says, became too costly. Well, in the end, I ended up, I ended up fixing the car myself. At, at, at so, have you have you dumped the insurance now? Have you dumped the policy? I haven't renewed it. Not on this car, no. New figures from the Bureau of Statistics show the cost of insurance, including home and contents and motor vehicles, rose 17% in the year to the December quarter, a record price hike. Alan Fells was tasked by the peak union body, the ACTU, to investigate how big corporations set their prices for shoppers. His 80-page report found millions of Australian consumers are being overcharged. My conclusion is that Australians are paying prices that are too high too often. He canvasses price activity among the banks, supermarkets and airline, among others. He says so-called profit push inflation, where firms hike their prices well above their costs to boost their profits, is a significant driver of inflation. There's been a significant degree of profit push or seller's inflation. It's occurred against the background of high and seemingly rising corporate concentration and is reflected in the surge of corporate profits and the rise in the profit share of GDP. The cause is weak and ineffective competition in too many sectors of the economy. Fells stops short of recommending price controls or regulating limits on how much companies can charge for their products. But he does think there's an urgent need to boost competition laws and he's singled out the power sector. The electricity industry is riddled with questionable prices. There is regular price gouging according to the regulators themselves. 
Fells notes companies use a range of strategies to overcharge customers, including increasing prices rapidly in times of high inflation and discounting slowly on the other side. But one leading economist criticises the report's findings as too simplistic. AMP's Deputy Chief Economist, Diana Mussina, says there's no conclusive evidence of profit-driven inflation or price gouging by major Australian corporations. The issue has been that actually in the past years we've had increases across many different parts of the supply chains. And then again goes to the point that the increase in prices that we've had or the very high inflation that, we, that we've had has been so broad-based that it's hard to pinpoint one exact reason for why it's occurred. It's, it's been global factors as well as the domestic economy. Broadly speaking, would you agree that Australia would do better, could do better with more competition? Well, as an economist, I think I'd have to say that generally more competition uh, can be good for consumers because it means a broader range of goods and services that are provided. And generally speaking, it does tend to put downward pressure on price growth. The government has appointed former Labor Cabinet Minister Craig Emerson to review the Food and Grocery Code of Conduct, which will involve analysing cost increases all through the supply chain. While the bureaucratic cogs keep turning, car owners like Ben remain frustrated about the cost of life's essentials. You know, I'm lucky I've got the time to fight and and just to, 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 to do stuff on principle, but a lot of people haven't. Yeah, like, indeed. how do they get on? How do they get on? You know, like it just causes, like it just causes family stress and tension. The Albanese government has also now formally issued a direction to the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission to investigate pricing and competition in the supermarket sector to ensure Australians are paying a fair price for their groceries. David Taylor there. Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister James Marape has landed in Canberra as he prepares to deliver an historic address to federal parliament tomorrow. Mr Marape is expected to heap praise on Australia and the bilateral relationship as he works to build deeper security and economic ties. But the visit comes against a backdrop of political chaos and unrest back in PNG and a region-wide arm wrestle for influence between Australia and China. Here's Foreign Affairs reporter Stephen Jedgetts. Australia's parliament has heard from foreign leaders before, including US and Chinese presidents. But tomorrow morning, James Marape will become the first Pacific leader to address a joint sitting of all MPs and senators in the lower house. And the prime minister says he feels the weight of history. The work of seven prime ministers before me, the work of cabinet ministers before us here, have laid the groundwork for us to now rise up to this level. The address comes ahead of the 50th anniversary of PNG's independence from Australia, which will fall next year. Mr Marape says he'll focus heavily on that legacy and the historical bonds between the two countries. As I said, Papua New Guinea must not take our sovereignty for granted. Uh, it could have been a deferred independence. And so we became independent from Australian hands. Our flag was hoisted up and Australian flag was lowered not torn down. 
part, more recent political events will also be weighing on the Prime Minister. The timing of the visit is undeniably awkward for Mr Marape. Last month, Port Moresby was rocked by riots, which left at least 15 people dead and destroyed countless businesses. And as soon as next week, the Prime Minister might face a no-confidence motion, with a post-election grace period expiring in the coming two days. Some of PNG's opposition MPs, like former government backbencher Pukatemu, are exasperated Australia's hosting Mr Marape at such a delicate moment, saying the Prime Minister will use the pageantry of the visit to bolster his political stocks at home. My concern is please a little bit more sensitive to the domestic politics. Why did they choose the eighth? They knew that ninth was the lapsing of the grace period provision. Was there an oversight? Did somebody go to sleep in the foreign affairs? Mr Marape's foreign minister, Justin Tachenko, angrily rejects that. He says this visit will transcend domestic political arguments in PNG and has historical significance. Those that are complaining about Australia hosting our Prime Minister here on this historical event are pathetic and totally are ridiculous in what they are saying. Maho Lavale from the University of Papua New Guinea says Prime Ministers usually remain in PNG when the grace period expires and Mr Marape's decision to travel might be a sign of confidence. I think Marape leaving reflects his strength within government. Um, he has the numbers at the moment. Um, it remains to be seen. Kenji politics is fluid. Um, and things can change as you get close to Parliament sitting. But the riots and the political fallout are also a reminder of how fraught Papua New Guinea's security remains. Last year, Australia and PNG signed a new security pact, which includes $200 million to help PNG build up its police force and its judiciary. Mr Marape and Mr Albanese will discuss the implementation of that agreement in Canberra tomorrow. Australia's not the only country keen to help. Last week, Mr Chichenko created headlines and some nervousness in Canberra when he said China was offering additional police and security assistance. He's now told the ABC that PNG will not push ahead with any new security pact with Beijing. I want to make this very clear. We are not pressing forward at all with any security uh, pact or agreement uh, with China and we look forward to implementing uh, the uh, bilateral security arrangement with Australia. But Mr Albanese might want to get a similar assurance from Mr Marape nonetheless. Foreign Affairs reporter Stephen Jedgetts. A new report into the behaviour of our school students is painting a worrying picture of life inside the classroom. Analysis included in a parliamentary inquiry that's set to be tabled this evening has found Australian schools ranked fifth last out of 37 OECD nations when it comes to disciplinary climate. And that's believed to be dragging down our students' ability to learn and driving teachers out of the profession. Liberal Party Senator Matt O'Sullivan chaired the Education Employment References Committee and he joined me earlier. Senator O'Sullivan, thanks for being with us. Just firstly, let's look at the problem. How badly behaved are Australian students compared to other similar countries? Well, David, uh, we are, we're ranking towards the very bottom of the pack measured by the OECD in their PISA results. Uh, and it's uh, very disappointing to see that... Uh, 
you know, we're, we're, we're lagging a long way behind and there's many reasons for it, but I think uh, we've got to really focus on the solutions and that's what our committee has been looking at. Before we get to those solutions, what, what are some of the most serious examples and, if you have any, the reasons for that bad behaviour? Well, the, uh, the, there's a spectrum, of course. There's that really disruptive behaviour that it results in violence and, and um, you know, serious disruption within classes. And then there's just the general disruption that occurs across our school classrooms. And what we're finding is that that because of the way that our classrooms are managed, there is a, a deterioration of behaviour that's affecting the ability for kids to learn. Now, we're not putting it all on the school. We're not saying that... It's, uh, it's all on the schools to fix. In fact, you know, kids need to pack in their backpack, if you like, an expectation, you know, from home that they're going to behave when they're at school. But we believe that there is, uh, because of the, the pedagogy, the, the way t kids are, are learning and the science of learning, uh, the, the standards and the, the processes that have been applied in schools now is, uh, needs, needs to be improved. Yeah, because we know that our standards of, of, of learning, our results are slipping. How much can be put down to disruptive behaviour, bad behaviour by other students in the classroom? Well, over a quarter of students are saying that it's impacting their, uh, their, their ability to learn in, in uh, some, if not all, classes. And that, that's a, a big impact, particularly in subjects like maths, where there has to be a particular focus and attention uh, to be able to learn. And that engagement with uh, students, because it's not there, because the teacher's you know, distracted to have to focus on those students that are being disruptive, uh, it affects, of course, the entire classroom. And so that's a big problem that, that has to be addressed. Did you get a sense in the committee um, investigation of how much this sort of thing is driving teachers away and contributing to teacher shortages? Yeah, throughout the inquiry, we heard a lot from teachers and there is a, a general um, dissatisfaction. Uh, you know, the, the very best teachers that we have, and we have wonderful teachers across the country, I want to be really clear about that. Australia has some of the best teachers in the world, let's face it, but... The, the teachers uh, uh, that are doing their best uh, are actually doing it in spite of the, the training that they receive because there is no training. There is no training in, when they're in university learning how to teach on how to manage classroom behaviour. And so because of that, we heard a lot from teachers that are saying, you know, we're just not equipped to be able to do it. And that, of course, uh, you know, is, is impacting upon um, um, that, you know, teachers wanting to stay in the job. Teachers going to work wanting to make a difference. And if, if there's disruptive classrooms, if they don't themselves feel equipped to be able to handle it, then of course that affects their morale and, uh, and, and, and retention within the schools. As you point out, teacher training is also a major part of this. The committee wants teaching courses at university to incorporate more behaviour management. Now, the federal government is looking at that already. Are you satisfied with what's underway? Look, we, we do welcome the, the findings and the recommendations of the Teacher Education Expert Panel, TEEP, as it's often referred to as Strong Beginnings, by Mark Scott. The, that report contained uh, some really strong recommendations and we, we absolutely back that. And we want to see that those priority recommendations are put in place. Because as I was saying before, the best teachers are, are operating you know, really effectively in spite of their lack of training. And so we think uh, it putting that as a real priority within the initial teacher training. It's really important as well that teachers are given the opportunity to, to practice what they're learning as well. We've seemed to have moved away in 
this country in our initial teacher training from providing that practicum experience. Now, you wouldn't put a pilot out there uh, without having them get in, in a, an aeroplane and actually fly an aeroplane. You know, just doing it in a simulated environment is not enough. You've got to actually get out and and, and obviously <laughs> learn how to operate an air, air, aircraft in a in a real world environment. And it's the same, I think, in our schools. Uh, you know, my mum's a teacher, and and uh, you know, many many years ago when she when she was learning how to teach, you know, she was actually in the classroom. And, and we seem to have moved away from that. So that's all part of the the strong beginnings report. And we think we just want to underscore. The importance of that and making sure that it's actually happening. Senator Matt O'Sullivan, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. That's Liberal Party Senator Matt O'Sullivan. You are listening to PM with me, David Lipson. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Well, it's one of the more powerful symbols in this country, the flag of Indigenous Australia, which has been seen on the front lines of First Nations people's struggle for equality for decades. But now there's a complex debate about whether it should be used in connection with another social cause. The Indigenous flag's been carried in pro-Palestine rallies, protesting against Israel's military operation in Gaza. And today, Olympic champion and former Senator and Indigenous Australian Nova Peris declared the flag is being misappropriated by the pro-Palestine movement. Jacqueline Breen reports. In a video posted on social media, Nova Paris explains why she's speaking out. I'm saddened to see our sacred Aboriginal flag, a flag which I fought so hard to be returned to the Aboriginal community, being misappropriated by Palestinian anti-Israel and anti-Jewish groups in Australia. Nova Paris helped lead the campaign that freed the red, yellow and black flag from copyright restrictions two years ago. She says she's deeply troubled by how it's been used recently. As a proud Aboriginal person, that is our sacred flag, that is our, our identity. And, and I'm all about this free prior informed consent. So to have used the plight of my people, the blood of my ancestors, to have hijacked our identity, it has brought a foreign conflict and tensions to this country, which I love. Nova Paris says the Indigenous community has received decades of support and solidarity from Jewish Australians who fought for their rights, including in last year's unsuccessful campaign for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. I know what they have done for my people when it comes to the people of Yaron Castens, Geoffrey Schurz, and how they sat on Mother Earth on the red soil to hear our stories, to gain us land rights and to erase the notion of terra nullius. The Jewish lawyers have been there, the Jewish people have been there. Fellow prominent Yes campaigner Marcia Langdon is also troubled by this use of the flag in pro-Palestinian rallies, but also says she's horrified by the death toll in Gaza and the West Bank. Another prominent Indigenous figure, Warren Mundine, also backs Nova Peris's position. I'm 100% behind her. Uh, you know, this idea that the reasons why people are using the, the Indigenous flag, the Aboriginal, with these pro-Palestinian groups is that it's Indigenous to Indigenous is, is false. Uh, we are Indigenous people. Uh, the uh, Jewish people are Indigenous people and been a massive supporter of Aboriginal people over many gener generations, uh, going back to William Cooper and beyond. And, uh, and uh, I think it's putting us in a position which we shouldn't be in. But there's no single view on when the Indigenous flag should or shouldn't be used. It's become a feature at pro-Palestinian rallies across the country. 
and the Palestinian flag was prominent at anti-Australia Day rallies held by Indigenous groups this year. Tarneen Onus-Brown organises the Melbourne March. As an Indigenous Australian, they believe there are similarities between the two causes. He was one of the most moving rallies that I've ever been a part of. But in another example, Tanin Onus-Brown was troubled by the use of the Aboriginal flag by anti-lockdown and anti-vax protesters. We do. We are in solidarity with Jewish people as well. And First Nations people have been in solidarity with Jewish people for a long time. Um, and there is a rise of anti-Semitism and we need to talk about that. But we also need to look at what is happening right now. And Palestinians are being bombarded by Israel and its government. And for me, we need to ensure that we speak up and talk about a potential genocide that is happening. And that's what um, I'm sure William Cooper would have wanted. That's Indigenous rally organiser Tarneen Onus-Brown ending that report by Jacqueline Breen. For years now, Queensland has been heavily reliant on the residential care system to provide placements for children put into state care. Queensland has the highest number of children in residential care and an alarming number of those children are under the age of 12. But the state government has today released a five-year roadmap to cut that number in half, as Elizabeth Cramsey reports. There are three types of -of out-of-home care in Queensland. Foster care, kinship care, which is placement with a relative or someone known to the child, and residential care. ResiCare is essentially supervised share houses and it's meant to be used as a last resort for kids over the age of 12 with severe support needs. But with the decreasing number of foster carers and an increasing number of kids entering care, there are few other options. Tom Alsop is the CEO of Peak Care. So Queensland, despite having 21% of the nation's children in care, currently has 40% of Australia's residential care placements. So a significantly large number of residential care placements and more than any other state and territory. He says there are currently 1,800 children in residential care facilities. Importantly with that, of course, is that we have a significant number of children under the age of 12 in a residential care system that is predominantly designed for children who are over the age of 12. So in Queensland, one in three children is under 12. Um, And since the commencement of the review, we actually have seen a small increase in the number of children under the age of four. The roadmap is the Queensland government's response to a review conducted by Tom Alsop and Luke Twyford, the state's family and child commissioner. They've welcomed the plan and are keen to see how it's implemented. Luke Twyford says it will need significant investment from the state government. Well, I think it's very important that action starts uh, today, if not earlier. We conducted this review in a way that allowed the department to start putting in place solutions immediately. We have a $700 million residential care system in Queensland, and this report and the review process has shown we need to use those dollars more effectively. We need to make sure children are loved and safe that they are engaging with the community and education and employment programs in positive ways. Uh, And we need to support our frontline workers so that they are feeling like they're making a positive difference and that we value them. So when can we expect to see that investment? 
Queensland's Minister for Child Safety is Sharice Mullen. So the first stage of implementation is really building on the work that we already have underway. We're going to be trialling some new models of residential care and building an evidence base of what works to meet the needs of Queensland children. And we'll also be supporting carers better and growing that family-based care. Uh, down the track, and you can see that it's sort of based on year-on-year-on end, down the track, we should, should we need to approach Treasury, then of course we'll make that decision then. We know there are lots of vacant child safety officer positions. How are you going to achieve success through this roadmap with the current issues? So we certainly have made a significant investment in frontline staff and uh, we have an active ongoing recruitment campaign to make sure that we don't just have sufficient staff but we have the right type of staff. As well, um, through the roadmap, you'll see Peak Care will be leading a residential care workforce strategy that's about meeting the current and future needs of the sector and we're also working with the Queensland Foster and Kinship Care to provide more support for foster and kinship carers. Is there any indication yet as to just what sort of dollar figure we're looking at to try and implement a lot of these targets? I think at this point in time, it's really working within the current funding envelope that we already have. Um, But certainly, as I indicated, I would be more than happy to consider further funding if required. Uh, But at this stage in time, it's about reducing residential care. And that's what our target is. It's about reducing residential care, increasing the number of our fostering kinship carers. um, And that is really more of an operational thing that I think uh, we will be working to achieve. It's a lofty goal. Do you think you can halve the number of children in Queensland's residential care system within that five-year roadmap? Look, it's an ambitious target, but we need to be ambitious. And key to meeting that target is that increase the number of uh, foster and kinship carers. Uh, The number of young people we have in residential care is too high, but it is stabilising. And I think this is a real opportunity for us to turn that ship around. That's Queensland's Minister for Child Safety, Sharice Mullen, ending that report by Elizabeth Crampsey. The autoimmune disease lupus affects about 25,000 Australians and can either be mild, debilitating or deadly. While there's currently no cure, Australian researchers have made a world-first discovery described as a game-changer for patients. And as Isabel Masali reports, it's believed the treatment could also be applied to other autoimmune diseases. It took a long time for Melbourne mother Sue Jennings to be diagnosed with lupus, Now she refers to it as a disease that turned her immune system against her own body and changed the course of her life. When I got it, it was three children under five and all I really wanted to do was to to be there for them while they grew up and it was no guarantee. Um, But I worked very hard to accept the limitations of a chronically ill life and do all the right things and look after myself and my health. The autoimmune disease affects people in different ways and can include organ damage. For Sue Jennings, the smallest impact has been a facial rash, the worst. Unrelenting fatigue and pain and just not having much ability to do very much in any given day and giving me these limitations that, you know, I end up often with using a walking stick or even needing to be in a wheelchair occasionally. And I certainly can't walk very far without those things. So it is really, I think, the grind of the debilitation and what you're not able to do that you used to just take for granted. Lupus affects about one in a thousand Australians, and that rate is higher among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. 
It largely affects women, particularly before the age of 45. Treatments are limited and can come with their own challenges. So life without lupus is beyond the imagination for some. I have never even thought about it because you don't dare to hope, right, because it's just too painful and it's been 20 years of no hope that there would be anything better than what I've achieved now, which is stability at least. The idea of something that would be a game changer, it, it's overwhelming. Now a study led by Monash University could soon offer an effective long-term treatment. I think it would completely change the way we treat autoimmune diseases. We'll be able to move away from general immunosuppression, we completely suppress the entire immune system, making the patient vulnerable to other infections like virus or bacteria, and just treat the part of the immune system. That's Joshua Uwe, an associate professor and the study's senior author. He says the team has had success with animal experiments using human cells. We compared patients with lupus and healthy people, and we worked out what it is that healthy people have that actually protect them from lupus. And using that knowledge, we transferred or modified patient cells using uh, gene technology to make them have the same things, the same receptor on a particular cell type to reset their immune system, to make the system specifically target the cause of lupus. He admits it's tricky to explain. So to put it another way... Like when your computer's not working properly and there's like sparks flying everywhere, it's just not working, you reset everything, you take out the cells that are missing a particular part, engineer the, the part that's missing and put it back in. So like a software upgrade or a reset. In practice, patients would have their blood drawn, work would be done on their cells and then put back into the patient. Professor Ui says that process may be needed every couple of years, but would be a vast improvement to current treatments. Human trials are expected to get underway in 2026, and it's hoped it'll be available to the public about five years from now. Very, very happy and excited, and which is why we've managed to get industry partnerships to actually help accelerate the process of going into a clinical trial. So it's never been done anywhere in the world before for this sort of therapy for any autoimmune disease. But we now have a plan to demonstrate to the regulatory bodies that this particular therapy is safe. The research team says they're also confident this approach can be used to treat other conditions, including multiple sclerosis and type 1 diabetes, though a tailored treatment must be developed for each disease. Isabel Masali. Well, that's the program for today. Thanks for joining us here on PM. I'm David Lipson. We will be back at the same time tomorrow. Until then, good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Living in Australia, we know there's a lack of competition. Two big supermarkets, two big airlines, and just a few more banks and electricity providers. And we know because of that, well, we get ripped off. Today, investigative journalist Adele Ferguson on how big companies trick us into paying more and how we can stop them. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.